This morning, we are in week four of our series, Why God Became Human, and this is Palm Sunday, and hopefully on your way in, you got a palm. If you didn't get a palm because you didn't see it, or if you're an adult and you thought you were too grown up, uh, too cool to hold a palm, but for whatever reason, if you don't have a palm, raise your hand. Our ushers will bring you a palm. We want everyone in the room to have one because we're going to use them towards the end of the service. Looks like you guys did pretty well on your way in getting them. But this is Palm Sunday, and, and in our series, Why God Became Human, we've had this theme verse. And our theme verse has been from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And it says that the Word became flesh, the Word meaning Jesus, became flesh, the incarnation, Jesus became man, God became man, and dwelt, this verb dwelt actually is a noun, tabernacle, that, that John uses as a verb. So Jesus tabernacled, dwelt, a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle where God's presence would dwell, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son, Jesus, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And last week in our series, we said that Jesus became human, God became human in order to show us the kingdom. But this morning, when we look at Palm Sunday and, and we look at this grand processional that was really a kingly processional on the Sunday before Jesus died on the cross, what we're going to see is that Jesus is not just showing us the kingdom, he's beginning to show us that he is the king, that Jesus is the king. And our big idea this morning is that Jesus came to be worshipped. He came to receive worship. And we're going to learn three things about Jesus our King this morning. We're going to learn about his authority. We're going to learn about his humility. And we're going to learn about his deity. Authority, humility, and deity. So let's jump right in. All four Gospels have this story recorded, but we're going to look at Luke's account. So we are in Luke chapter 19. I'm reading to you from the ESV. Beginning in verse 28, it says this. And when he, Jesus, had said all these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem, which was at a higher elevation. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt. A colt is a young baby donkey tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, uh, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This is a bizarre story, right? I mean, maybe you've heard it so much that the impact of it isn't there anymore. But this is weird that Jesus would just say, go get something that doesn't belong to me, and if they say anything to you, tell them it's for me. <laughs> Imagine you walk out to your driveway tomorrow morning and somebody's starting your car. And you say, uh, excuse me, why are you starting my car? And they say to you, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> You're like, well, the police have need of a phone call, right? So you, it, it just, it's a strange sort of story. And What's happening here? And there's some possible explanations, and some of the commentators say, well, maybe Jesus had previously made arrangements, and they knew that this was expected. I, probably not, but, but also, Jesus' name and his fame was beginning to grow, and maybe people, these people were interested in Jesus, or even they were followers of Jesus, or they had heard Jesus teach, or they had seen Jesus heal someone, and maybe they were willing to give up their baby donkey for Jesus. 
Also, this is a holiday week. This is a religious holiday. This is Passover week. And there are pilgrims from all over the known world coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. So in this specific week of the calendar year, the Jewish people were increasingly hospitable to the pilgrims. And they would let them come and, and sit at their tables and eat their meals and, and stay with them. And so maybe this was just an extreme act of hospitality. We don't really know. But whatever happened here, one thing is clear. Jesus has authority. He has some authority. And we see his authority in three ways in this story. We see it in the obedience of the disciples. Jesus tells them to do something. Now, if I was a disciple and Jesus said, go take something that doesn't belong to us, and if they don't like it, just give them this weird answer, I would have been like, can, can Andrew do it? Like, can someone else have this assignment? You know, most of us growing up, we say things like this. I'm never going to be like my dad. I'm never going to be like my mom. I'm never going to parent like them. I'm never going to say the things that they say. And then you become a parent. And that, that, that shocking day comes where something comes out of your mouth. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm my dad. Oh, my goodness, I'm my mom. And all the things I swore I would never say. Parents have all these things that they say. And I have three daughters, and two of them in particular like to understand the logic behind every request I make of them. They want a full conversation when I just want obedience, right? And so I find myself sometimes as a parent just when they're like, why do I have to do this? I say the classic parent line, you know it, because I said so, right? It's the worst answer for a kid. Kids hate that answer. I hated that answer, but it's very useful as a parent, actually. I, I, I find it great. And I'm sure the disciples are like, why should we go get this donkey? Like, we could get arrested here, or, or we could be accused of something, but Jesus' authority is strong enough that he can just say, because I said so. Because of my word, the disciples obeyed. We see his authority in the compliance of the owners of the young donkey, that they give the donkey up. There's the authority of Jesus. But then there's something else in this story that's really interesting and actually easy to miss. It's the, res it's the response of this baby donkey. This baby donkey that's not broken. And, and in one of the commentaries that I looked at by a guy named D.A. Carson, he points out that you don't ride unbroken animals. I don't know how many of you have been around horses, you like to ride horses, or if you've even just seen a movie or a TV show about horses. But when a wild horse is, is sort of captured or brought in, there is a long process, which they call breaking the horse, right? And what they're doing is, is they're getting the horse used to having a rider so that when the rider gets on the horse, the, the, the horse doesn't lose its horse mind, right? And so there is this process through which you break an animal so that it can be ridden. And here Jesus says, get me a baby colt that no one has sat on yet, and I'm going to ride it through a yelling crowd into a city. I shared last week about our experience of taking our young puppy, Mickey, to Onondaga Lake Park and how the crowd made him lose it. I couldn't help but think of that again as I thought of this story. And, and then D.A. Carson goes on to say this. I, I loved this. All week I read this to myself. He says, in the midst of all of this that's happening, remember, this is a public festival, a celebration, a holiday, uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of people traveling into Jerusalem. Streets are packed. In the midst of all of this, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and stills the storm. This even points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. Listen, some of you need to hear that for your lives right now. Let me read that again. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. 
And then I love this line. The animal knows and loves his true master for who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the healing and the completion of all nature as found in Isaiah chapter 11, when the wolf shall live with the lamb and all things will be made new and all things will be made right and all things will be made whole. And Jesus gets on this unbroken donkey who no one has ever sat on before, but the donkey recognizes the touch of his master. And even under the hand of the master, this unbroken donkey walks calmly and steadfast through a screaming, cheering, celebrating the authority of our king, the authority that Jesus has. He's not weak, he's strong, he's mighty. And there's two application points for us this morning before we move on. One will encourage you and one will probably sober you. The encouraging one is this, there is not a circumstance that you're facing right now that Jesus Christ does not have authority over. When he speaks a word, it has the sort of power to create and to make things happen. And whatever Jesus said will come to pass. All his promises are yes and amen. And so some of you have received words from Jesus by reading the scriptures. Maybe you've had somebody with the gift of prophecy speak some sort of truth over you and you're wondering, has the word been forgotten? Does the word not still have power? And I want to remind you this morning that Jesus' word has power and authority over every area of our lives. So whatever that relational stress that you're dealing with right now, whatever your financial concern may be, whatever that medical diagnosis you may have received, you serve a king who can ride into your situation and speak a word. And he has that sort of authority. And I hope that encourages you this morning, that Jesus Christ has authority over our situations. And I know that the way in which he exercises his authority, listen, because I have to say this, because this is true, I know the way in which he exercises his authority is not always in the timing that we would like him to exercise his authority, Right? But it doesn't mean he has any less authority. The judge who's going to eventually proclaim the criminal to be convicted does not have any less authority when the crime is actually being committed. The authority is still there all along. It's just at the right time the authority is exercised. And someday we will see Jesus as king. He will not return as a baby in a manger, but he will return as king. And on that day, he will exercise judgment and authority. And everything that has been unseen will be made right. And everything that has been done in secret will be rewarded. And on that day, we can trust in the authority of Jesus. So wherever you're at this morning, trust in his authority. But the second application here is a little more sobering, a little more um, hard to receive. And it's this. Jesus wants to not just have authority over your circumstances. He wants authority over you and over me. Our vision statement here at Trinity is gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Every area, there is not an area of your life, there's not a moment of your week that Jesus doesn't want to exercise his authority and reign and rule. And so often we want to give Jesus parts of our lives. I'll give you, I'll give you Sunday mornings for an hour, but the rest of the week is for me. I'll give you this and this and this, but don't touch, uh, don't touch my, my finances. I'll trust you with this, but not with my children. I'll honor you in this way, but I, but I like that too much to, to stop doing that or to walk away from that. And Jesus here is a king who has authority, and he claims authority over every, not just area of our lives, but every inch of the universe. This is the God that we serve, every area of our life, the authority of our king. Secondly, we see the humility of our king in this story. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. It says, And they brought it, speaking of this baby donkey, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks 
on the road. The humility of Jesus Christ here, that he's actually fulfilling a prophecy, a 600-year-old prophecy by a man named Zechariah. And if you go into the Old Testament and you look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah prophesied that the king was coming, righteous and having salvation, and, and that he would be humble, listen, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. 600 years before this story happened, Zechariah prophesied it. And Jesus fulfilled it, which, by the way, is one of 351 prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled when he came to earth with his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. 351 prophecies over the course of thousands of years, Jesus shows up and his life fulfills every single one of them in detail. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on this donkey. And, you know, I don't... This whole idea of a king entering into a city was not foreign back then. This is what victorious kings would do is they would come back and they would ride into cities and people would come out to greet them and cheer them for their victory and praise them for what they had done. And in many ways, what happens on Palm Sunday was a very normal event except for the animal that Jesus rode in on. Kings would ride in on stallions, on white stallions, on strong horses that were uh, symbolic of their power and their strength. But Jesus rides in not just on a donkey, but on a baby. (laughs) I mean, it may have looked ridiculous if you think about it. A grown man on the back of a baby donkey riding into Jerusalem. And one of the commentators said this. On one hand, this looks like other triumphal entries. 200 years before this story happened, 200 years before Palm Sunday, a man named Simon Maccabeus had defeated foreign armies, foreign armies and kept Israel independent. And after defeating these armies, Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem just like Jesus did on this day. And people shouted cheers just like the people did on this day. And they even waved palm branches because palm branches were symbolic of victory and the joy of victory. But Jesus' triumphal entry, it parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battles do not ride into their capital cities riding on donkeys, but on fearsome horses. But this kind does not, because Jesus will not triumph through the force of arms. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they thought he was the Messiah, the king, they were expecting a political ruler or a military ruler. Someone who would, as Pastor Jason said earlier, would establish a kingdom here on earth. But Jesus didn't come for that. He didn't come for a kingdom that would last for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. He came for an eternal kingdom that would last forever. And Jesus comes to us in great humility. And Jesus comes in not by taking power and killing, but by giving up power and dying. And by the end of the week, Jesus, our king, would not be ascended to a throne, but he would be lifted up on a cross. Jesus came in weakness. This means a couple things for us this morning. It means that if our Jesus was so humble, how should we be as his people? Pride is one of the greatest enemies to being useful in the kingdom. The, the, the more prideful I am, spiritually prideful I am, the, the wiser, you know, when, I, when I'm impressed with myself, when, I, when I'm impressed with my Bible knowledge, when I'm impressed with my years of going to church, when I'm, when I'm impressed with all the things that I do and all the things that I don't do, though, that sort of a heart attitude will keep you from being useful in the kingdom of God. You want to be a stallion, and, and, and Jesus is looking for donkeys. I'm not calling you a donkey this morning, but... <laughs> Gordon Ramsay has a show called Hell's Kitchen, and on the show, he just yells at people, of course, about how bad of 
uh, chef they are. But for some reason, he likes calling people donkeys. He calls people, I'm sure it's not a compliment. And, uh, but he's Scottish and English. So when he says it, all I can hear is Shrek uh, saying, saying donkey. I'm not calling you a donkey this morning or any word that is synonymous with donkey. Um, but I am saying if we're going to be the people of God, sometimes we have to be willing to just serve, bear burdens. A donkey was a burden bearer, right? And Jesus, the burden bearer of the universe, came into Jerusalem riding on the back of a burden bearer. And many times our call is just to bear the burden. Jesus' burden for lost people, for people who need him. Jesus' burden for people to be served and reached. And it won't be the prideful who do it. It'll be those who model the humility of their king, Jesus. But the other thing that this means for us, and this is such good news is that just like Jesus didn't enter in strength, but he entered in weakness, you and I don't enter into the kingdom of God through strength. (laughs) We enter through weakness. You don't come to Jesus and give him your resume. You don't come to God and say, I would like you to save me, and here's all the reasons why. Here's all the good things I do. Here's all the bad things I don't do. Here's how hard I try to be moral. Here's all my faithfulness. I've served in this ministry for years. You don't come to God flexing your muscles with your resume to say, be impressed with me and save me. That is the obstacle to experience the salvation that God came to bring. But instead, we come in weakness and we say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own, but I need you. Listen, many people give up on the Christian faith because they say, I can't do this. But I can't do this is not the end of the Christian faith. It's the beginning of the Christian faith. Until you say, I can't do this, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. But as soon as you're willing to say, I can't do it, I need a savior, I need someone to do it in my place, then you're in the perfect position to enter the kingdom and to receive what this king has for you. We don't come to him in our strength. We come to him in our weakness. It's the weakness of recognizing our sinfulness, our lostfulness, but then also turning our hearts in repentance to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I've loved so many things besides you. I've made so many other things my king, and I turn from those things, and by your grace, I turn to you. You can do that this morning if you've never done that before. Put your faith and trust in Jesus, our king. He's a humble king, and I love that about Jesus. Jason talked a couple weeks ago about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. These were men who would betray him and deny him and abandon him within hours. And yet Jesus took the position of a servant, our humble king. Jesus, by the way, we believe was perfect. He never sinned. He never did the wrong thing. And still he was humble. Can you imagine who you and I would be if we were perfect? What monsters we would be? (laughs) what horrors we would be, what jerks we would be. It's our imperfections that keep us kind of humble, but it was Jesus' perfection that kept him humble. He's so different from us, but he gives his life to us so that we can be just like our humble king. The last thing we see in this story is the deity of our king. He's not just a human king. He's a God king. And this is so important. Let's finish the story. It says in verse 37, as Jesus was drawing near, so picture this, he's riding on this donkey uh, on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples. So a huge crowd begins to gather and they begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice with all the mighty works that they had seen or for all the mighty works, saying, blessed is the king, not a king. In fact, this, this phrase right here, what they're doing here is they're actually singing a famous psalm. I think it's Psalm 118. And they're quoting this psalm. And this is a psalm that would have been sung all week long as the pilgrims came 
into Jerusalem, they would quote this psalm, blessed, but in the, in the original psalm, Psalm 118, it would be a psalm that they would sing as King David or King Solomon or, 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 or King whoever would come up to the temple to worship. And it would say, blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. But it changes here and it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then it goes on to say, and some of the Pharisees, look at the response of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So hold on, let's stay there for a second. That word rebuke means you gotta correct them. They're doing something wrong. There's a problem here. And what was the problem? Everybody on Palm Sunday recognized what was happening in that moment. The crowd was worshiping Jesus. They weren't just excited that he was there. They were worshiping him as God, as Messiah, as their hope, as their salvation. And the Pharisees saw it happening and their their hearts just sunk. And they're like, we can't have this. This is blasphemy. And so they say to Jesus, you gotta rebuke your disciples. They're committing a sinful act of blasphemy. And look what Jesus says. He answered, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's deity, he's God, and he's worthy of worship. And if we don't worship him, nature itself will cry out and worship him. We've been reading uh, as a church together, and we're over halfway through our 90 days to the New Testament. Let's keep going strong. When we read the Gospels, one of the questions, I forget who, a couple of you might have posted in the um, chat area, was why does Jesus seem to not want people to know what he's doing? Do you notice that in the Gospels? Early on, he tells people, don't, don't tell anyone I did this. Just keep this between you and me. Of course, nobody ever follows Jesus' uh, instructions. They can't, they're all blabbermouths. They all got to go and tell everybody. But one of the questions that some of you asked is, why is Jesus doing that? And part of the reason why Jesus was doing that is because he knew why he had come to earth. It wasn't just to heal people. It wasn't just to do miracles. He had come to earth to establish the kingdom of God amongst his followers, but then ultimately to die on a cross. And Jesus knew that if my ministry becomes too public, if my reputation gets too big, if too many people are talking about me, it's going to force the hands of the religious establishment to step in and stop me before I do everything that God sent me to do. And that's really why Jesus says, don't tell anyone, just keep it between us. But here we are, the week he's going to die, and it's like Jesus has taken off the chains. He's letting everybody know who, he knows he's going to the cross this week. So at this point, he's becoming very explicit in talking about what he came to do and who he is. And here, Jesus publicly in front of a crowd of people receives the worship of others. Jesus knew that he was God. He claimed to be God and he received worship as God. If you've been in church a long time, you're probably thinking like, we know that. Why are you emphasizing it? Because this is one of the key doctrinal beliefs that distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths. Many other religions believe that Jesus existed, right? Most do. History proves that actually. Many other religions believe Jesus was a good teacher. Many other religions believe Jesus was a good man. Other religions say Jesus was actually a prophet. But Christianity stands alone in saying Jesus was God. And Jesus wasn't made God later by his followers, who, by the way, were the least likely people to come up with that sort of a lie based on their religion and who they were. We'll talk maybe more about that on Easter Sunday. 
but he was claimed to be God himself. Can I give you some quick, because you're going to come across people who are going to say, I don't, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God, and that's actually not true. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, now Abraham existed thousands of years before Jesus ever came as, was born as a baby, but Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's speaking of his eternal nature that I've always been around, his deity, his God uh, stat, status. In John chapter 14, he says, the Father and I are one. And, and the Pharisees knew, listen, you don't get killed for being a nice person. You don't get killed for healing people. You don't get killed for doing uh, miracles. You get killed. Jesus was killed because they, the Pharisees knew he's claiming to be God, which was blasphemy which was an ultimate crime in their religion. In Mark chapter three, he says to the paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof, before he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven. If somebody offends me, let's say somebody says something terrible about me, and then they apologize to someone else about it, that doesn't work. When you sin against someone, what do you have to do? You have to apologize to the person you sinned against. All sin is against God. And so when Jesus said, I forgive your sins, he was saying, I'm God. And I have the power to forgive your sins. And then in John's version and in Mark's version of his trial, it's very clear that Jesus says, I am the son of man. I'm the son of David. I'm the son of God. And you will see me coming in the clouds. And that's what gets him crucified. And between services, one of our church leaders said, hey, there's another great example. After Jesus is resurrected, he appears to the disciples. And Thomas isn't there the first time. And Thomas shows up the next time. And when Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Thomas, you get a little carried away. I mean, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy, but don't worship me as God. Jesus doesn't. He allows it. In fact, he says, blessed are you because you've seen and you believe. But there's a greater blessing for those who don't see and still believe. Listen, Jesus was not confused about who he was. He wasn't as explicit about it as we might have liked him to be, but that was because he was there to do a work. Jesus, as he gets closer to the cross, as we get closer to Good Friday, he's revealing his true mission in his true identity. I mean, the, the day before this story, two blind men publicly call him the son of David, which is a messianic term, and Jesus allows it to be publicly said. Right after this story, Jesus walks into the temple, the religious center of the Jewish faith, and calls it my house. This is my house. Then uh, Jesus rides in. He doesn't walk in. He's declaring that he is king. And then the crowd spreads their cloaks and they wave their palms. This is what people would do for a king. And they wave the palms and they, and they yell out, Hosanna, which means salvation or save us. Make all things new. Make all things right. And the only one who can make all things new and all things right is the true king, our God and our Savior. And in a minute, we're going to, in fact, the band can come up. We're going to sing two songs. And the second song we're going to sing is called Hosanna. And when we get to that song, I want you all to grab your palm branches. And just like on Palm Sunday, we're going to wave them and sing them, and sing those words, Hosanna. And as we sing Hosanna, here's what we're saying. Save us, God. Save us. And we're thanking him for the salvation that is found in Jesus. This Good Friday, we will gather together as a church, and we will remember what Jesus, our king, did to make all things new, to make all things right, to bring what the Jewish people call shalom, peace, wholeness, restored. Jesus, our King, who came with authority, who came with humility, but also came as God. And when we look at Jesus on this Palm Sunday, and we see this crowd of people surrounding him crying out, blessed is the King. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they cry out, Hosanna. I don't know if this crowd knew exactly the significance of what they were saying. 
I don't know if they knew that Jesus had come not just to save them from political uh, uh, influence or, or, or the Roman power or the Greek influence. I don't know exactly what they thought they were singing, but Jesus came to save us from our sins and to save us from separation from the Father. This is the king that we don't deserve, but it's the king that we need. And he came to be that king. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing. And this first song will be new to many of you. But this song is all about all hail King Jesus, worshiping him as king and Lord of our lives. Let's stand together and sing this song.